morning and Merry Christmas. Well, as you know, we are here to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Christmas. Most people gather, excuse me, most, most people gather to celebrate Christmas in order to get a feeling, to get a feeling of family and friends, to get a feeling of joy and peace, to get a feeling of the holidays. I'm here to tell you today that that's not what Christmas is about. I'm not saying those things are wrong in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with those things in essence, in nature, in character. It's just that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about a name, a name that we celebrate. In ancient times, parents often gave their children names that had a significance to them, names that had special meaning. And some of those names we even have with us today. The name David means beloved. The name Esther means star. The name Ruth means friendship. Christmas, the term Christmas, has in it the term Christ, which actually is not a name. Christ technically is not a name. And we use it as a name, but technically it's a title. Right? His name is not Jesus, last name, first name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. And that is a title that means Messiah. The Hebrew word Mashiach translated into Greek is Christos, and you translate that into English and you get our English word Christ. His given name is Jesus. That's his given name. And that name has an ancient meaning, the name Jesus it's a meaning not of human origin, like these other names that I mentioned, a Ruth, a David, an Esther. The name Jesus is of divine origin for a divine person. And so this is the focus of our message today. He is Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his given name. Jesus is a name that sadly we often forget. Often we forget that the holidays is about not just celebration, but it is about Christmas. And it is this name, the announcement of the name of Jesus, that was associated with the flurry of angelic activity. Because when the name was revealed, when Jesus came to this planet, there was this intense angelic activity. I'm just going to talk about three of those angelic visits. We're going to see three of the angelic visits this morning. And we're going to begin with the, ga- the angel Gabriel's visit to Zacharias. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, begins like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zacharias is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, Zechariah, and the name here, Herod, is the Herod that issued the order to slaughter the baby boys 
of Judea, of, of Bethlehem of Judea, because he knew that the king was coming, and so he issued the order to slaughter all the baby boys. And, of course, Jesus, as a baby, escaped because God revealed to Joseph and to Mary, instructed them to go to Egypt, and they escaped. What's unique about Jesus is that Jesus was born to die. We're all going to die. Look, I'm not trying to be dark here on, on Christmas, but I'm just being honest, right? The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. The rapture will be an exception to, for that generation. But there's a difference between every other human being and Jesus because Jesus was born with the express purpose to die. But he would not die on Herod's timing. He would die on the Father's timing. And so this is the Herod who is referenced here in verse 5, and this is the Zacharias. It is Zacharias who is an Aaronic priest and whose Hebrew name is Zechariah. Keep reading in verse 6. They, the they there is Zacharias and his w wife Elizabeth. Zacharias and, Elib and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. It's not that they were sinless. This isn't saying that Zacharias and his wife were sinless. It says that they were righteous. You see that word? Righteous. That's what happens when someone trusts in the Lord by faith. This is what happens throughout the generations. I mean, push the rewind button 4,000 years back to Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham, when it records that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what's called imputed righteousness. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, Elizabeth were righteous because God gave them his righteousness. It was that way for them 2,000 years ago. It was that way for Abraham 4,000 years ago. And it's that way today. Now, because salvation has always been by grace through faith in the Lord, as the Lord has revealed himself in the applicable era. And through salvation, through that faith, then God sees us not as the sinners that we are, but he sees us as righteous, having received his righteousness. This is the description of this couple. It's not saying that the couple, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless. It's saying that they were Righteous. Another way that, that, that you know that they weren't sinless is because it says they followed the commandments. It says they followed the commandments and the requirements of God, which is to say the Mosaic Law. What is part of the Mosaic Law? The sacrifices. So when they sinned, they would offer a sacrifice, which kind of shows that they were sinners, but like everybody else, but they were righteous. What this passage is telling us in verse 6 is that they were godly. This is a godly couple. Keep reading in verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. When you see a reference in the scripture to a woman being barren because in that era that was something of, of a stigma, something of shame. And when you see a reference like this, there's, there's a tension. There's a tension that's in the story and you know it's leading to the business of God. You know what I mean when I say the business of God? Miracles. The impossible. 
God does that which is not otherwise possible. And so, for this woman, something spectacular is going to happen. Elizabeth's barrenness reminds us of the mothers of the patriarchs. Right? Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren before she gave birth to Isaac. That's why it was funny, because she's 90 years old when she gives birth. You've got to laugh at that. That's just funny. That's why the boy's name, Isaac, means laughter. Because a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a baby boy is humorous. This reminds, the, the text here reminds us of the patriarchs where the wife of Abraham, Sarah, was barren before she gave birth to Isaac, where the wife of Isaac, Rebekah, was barren before she gave birth to the two twins, Esau and Jacob, where the wife of Jacob, Rachel, was barren before she gave birth to Joseph. God is about to do something spectacular in the text. So keep reading in verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing, while Zacharias, the Aaronic priest here, one of the Aaronic priests, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I cannot overemphasize how significant this is how much of an honor and a privilege this is for Zacharias to come into the temple and to burn incense at the altar. At that time, there were thousands of priests, thousands of them. And so what they would do is they would cast lots. Think of lots as dice almost. They would cast lots to determine who would have the privilege, so once in a lifetime, once in a career privilege, to go into the temple and to burn incense in Jerusalem in the temple of God. The lots fall on Zacharias because he's lucky. Right? No. Because God is sovereign. Sovereign even over the dice. Sovereign even over the lots. Keep reading. In verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. There's a crowd There's a crowd before the temple when the priest walks in by himself. Zacharias walks in by himself to burn incense. He's not in the Holy of Holies. You don't go into the Holy of Holies. He's outside of the Holy of Holies where the altar is. Keep reading in verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Please erase from your brains this fiction that angels are soft, fluffy beings. La-la beings. Right? I mean, we can buy angel-soft toilet paper. Because it's soft and fluffy. We can buy angel candles. We can buy angel perfume. The common response for someone who's in the presence of an angel is abject fear in the Bible, right? When the angel appears to Daniel in Daniel 10, it says Daniel trembled. The prophet Daniel, the mighty Daniel, Daniel, you're the man. He trembles in the presence of the angel who reveals the word of God, the prophecies to Daniel. 
When the shepherds are in the field and the angel appears to them in Luke chapter 2, it says that they are terribly frightened. And so this man, this priest, who is up in years, it's not like he's a baby priest. This is a senior priest. The angel appears next to him at the altar and fear grips him, meaning he can't move, right? When you're terrified, sometimes you're just frozen. He sees the angel. Maybe he just keeps his eyes and he just sees him out of, the, out of his peripheral vision. This is the image that we're receiving here with respect to this priest before the angel. Keep reading in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Zacharias had been praying for a child because he and his wife were childless. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. This is John the Baptist. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Jump down to verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. The him is capitalized. The him is a reference to Messiah. It's a reference to Jesus It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here the angel cites scripture. The angel cites the word of God. He cites the very last verse of the Bible. At least the very last verse of the Bible that existed at that time. This is the very last verse of the Old Testament that he is citing there that you see in all caps in verse 17. To turn to the hearts, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That is Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And Zacharias, as a priest, would have known this. Keep reading in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Zacharias doesn't believe. He doesn't believe the words of God that are being delivered by God through this angelic messenger. I guess he's forgotten. He's forgotten how God made Sarah, who was way past the age of menopause. I guess he's forgotten how God made the dead womb of Sarah alive so that she could give birth to Isaac when she was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 years old. What we're seeing here is unbelief even from a righteous man. This is puzzling, right? This is unbelief from a godly man because the text describes him as righteous who follows the commandments of God. What does it show us? It shows us that there is a ravine on this side and there's a ravine on that side. And we walk on this very narrow path. And it also shows us that unbelief is a moral decision. Unbelief is a sin, a very serious sin. And there's always consequences for unbelief. Zacharias will bear the consequences of his unbelief in a moment. Divine discipline. Look at verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, 
I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Can you imagine that? Do you know who you're talking to, Zechariah? I am the one who stands in the presence of Almighty God in the third heaven. And yet you do not believe the words that Almighty God has given me to deliver to you in answer to your prayer. But lest we throw too many tomatoes at Zacharias, we ourselves, sometimes we ask for God's favor. We go to God, and yet we don't trust Him. So I'm looking in the mirror when I, when I preach this message as well. But keep reading. In verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. There are three angels out of the myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. The the, the Bible describes the angelic realm as having myriads, an incalculable number of angels that God has created. But out of that incalculable number, Mass of angels, we only have the names of three of them. We have the name of the head of the fallen angels, Satan, or the name that comes from the Latin, Lucifer. We have the angelic warrior, Michael, who will lead the armies of angels against the devil and his armies of angels in Revelation 12. And of course, he wins. And then we have the third angel, who is the subject of our passage here, the messenger angel, Gabriel. Gabriel is the same one who gave the message, who gave the prophecies to Daniel back in the book of Daniel. Keep reading. In verse 20, we receive the statement of the divine discipline that is for Zacharias' unbelief. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, the angel says, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The punishment is that Zacharias will be mute from this day forward until the time that the boy is born, until the time that John is born. So over nine months, on the eighth day, After John's birth, his lips will be opened and his vocal cords will be returned. Keep reading in verse 21. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. Has God, has he done something disrespectful to God? And has God simply killed him inside the temple? They're wondering, I'm sure. Verse 22. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. Zacharias is not a resident of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is located in the region of Judea. And we know from elsewhere in the scripture that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth are from a town in the hill country of Judea. Verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with me, looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Zacharias walks out of the temple 
mute. He travels home to his town in Judea, in the hill country, mute. He has sexual relations with his wife, and she conceives. He's mute. She has her pregnancy for nine months, and he's mute. And then on the eighth day, when the boy was to be circumcised in fulfillment of the law, because as we've studied before, the eighth day is the perfect time to circumcise a boy because that is the peak of the vitamin, vitamin K, and the clotting factor because God is a God of extreme precision. And so on the eighth day, when John the Baptist will be baptized, and the people say, and they look to Zacharias, what do we name him? And Zacharias takes out a tablet, and he writes on John. And then his mouth opens, and then he's able to speak. But for that entire nine-month period, from the time of conception through nine months, he's mute. Now, I assume when he got home, he communicated to his wife, sweetie, I saw an angel. But he didn't say it that way. He would have taken something, because he knows how to write, and he would have written it, and he would have showed it to her. You're going to conceive, sweetie, and you're going to have a baby. And this baby is the baby who is prophesied in the Scripture, who will go before Messiah, who will cry out in the wilderness, make way, make, make straight the way of the Lord. This is the first of the angelic visits that we study this morning. The first angelic visit was not to announce the name. The first angelic visit was to announce the human herald of the name. Right? The first angelic visit here is to announce the birth of John, who would be the human messenger with respect to Jesus. Let's look at the second angelic visit in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. We read this, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, same angel, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The reference here to six months is not Mary's pregnancy. It's Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy is when this is happening. So just get the picture. The angel appears to Zacharias in Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the land of the Israelites. Zacharias goes home. John... The Baptist is conceived. Six months go by. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Then the angel comes again, but this time he comes to the northern part of the land of Israel. He goes to Nazareth to visit Mary. This is the, this is the picture of what we are seeing here. Mary is probably a teenager. It says that she is engaged. They got married very young back then. She's engaged here. She's engaged to Joseph in that era they had very long engagement periods, usually a year long. And engagement was much more serious than our engagements or betrothals, betrothals that we have today. Engagement, betrothal, was really part and parcel of the wedding and really part and parcel of marriage. And so they would be referred to as husband and wife. Even during the engagement period, they were treated as married, but they didn't have sexual relations until after 
the betrothal period was finished and it actually had the wedding. Keep reading in verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. This is the angel speaking to Mary. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I bet she was. I'm sure she was. Greeting, favored one. This is what the angel of God says to this teenager, to this young woman. Keep reading in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. So just like Zacharias, her response is fear in the presence of an angel. But unlike Zacharias, she will immediately believe the angel's words. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Notice the name doesn't come from her. She doesn't say, oh, I know what I'm going to name that baby boy that you just told me that I'm going to have. No, the angel gives the name because the name Jesus is of divine origin. It's of divine origin for a divine person. Keep reading in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. These are unmistakably messianic promises that Mary would have recognized. Right? The angel says her baby boy will be the Son of the Most High. That means the Son of God. That doesn't mean that he will be an offspring of God. That's not what Son of God means. It doesn't mean offspring of God. It means of the same order, of the same essence as God. Back then, when you want to describe someone as being of the same nature as someone else, you'd say, so-and-so is the son of such-and-such. So like when David says, son of man, he's saying, he's referring to humanity, right? Humanity... We're all of the same nature, human beings. Now, there's a difference between a man and a woman. There's a difference between a man and a woman. I'm sorry, I have to say that twice in our current culture, right? (laughs) But the essence is the same. Ontologically, we're the same. Or the statement son of perdition in the New Testament. The New Testament uses the phrase son of perdition, which means son of destruction. It uses it for two people, for Judas Iscariot and the Antichrist. That means Judas Iscariot is so associated with destruction that he's the son of destruction. The Antichrist is so associated with perdition that he's the son of perdition. That's what it means to be the son of in ancient times. And so son of God doesn't mean offspring of God. It means of the same order As God, the angel says, This child will receive the throne of David and will reign over the house of Jacob. Another way of saying Israel. Remember, God renamed Jacob to Israel. And this reign will be forever, the angel says. He will have a kingdom without end. These are prophecies that are reserved for only one person in the scripture, they're reserved exclusively for the Messiah. God. This must have blown Mary's mind entirely. How is it 
that I'm going to give birth to the humanity of the one who is eternal. Because the, 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 the prophecies of Messiah are clear, right? In Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, the Bethlehem where Jesus is born. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me, God says, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of Olam in the Hebrew, from the days of eternity. Mary is going to give birth to the humanity of the one who is from Olam, from everlasting to everlasting. So, of course, her mind is blown. Plus, she's never had relations with a man. And so she says in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? She's not saying, I don't believe you, like, like was like Zacharias was doing with Gabriel. She's saying, I don't understand how this is going to happen. I, I, I trust you, but I, I, how? How? And so the, the, the angel Gabriel doesn't rebuke her like he rebuked Zacharias six months earlier. He doesn't rebuke her. He blesses her by giving her more revelation. Look at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. May I say, what a woman. What a woman. You know the word that she uses to describe herself? The slave of the Lord. The, the, the dule, which is the feminine version of doulas. The dule of the Lord. This is a woman of women. And she is described here as privileged, as honored. What she's saying is, Lord, let your will be done for me, in me and through me. She is the prophesied seed of the woman. She's not the queen of heaven. She's not the co-redeemer, as some believe. Sometimes we as Protestants, we, we, we kind of treat Mary like she should be cast off to the curb because we take the other extreme. Don't do that. Don't do that. She is the most honored of any woman in the history of humanity because she gave birth to our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, she's not the queen of heaven. That's unscriptural. That's not found in the Bible. And she's not the co-redeemer. She's a sinner like everybody else. Honored, privileged, no doubt. And this is what is happening here with these words to the angel and her response. And what does the angel say? Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. And I fear that you and I don't believe that. I fear that you and I sometimes forget that. 
What the angel is saying is that there is nothing too difficult for God. And look at where he says it. He says it in verse 37. And the context of verse 37 is with respect to Elizabeth. He's talking about nothing will be impossible with God because your relative Elizabeth gave birth. Maybe when Zacharias said she's beyond years, maybe he's saying she's beyond the years years of menopause. She's beyond the age of of menopause. And so the angel says, with her, she's going to give birth. In fact, she's already six months pregnant because nothing is impossible with God. And then the angel says, that's her, but you, you're going to give birth and you're a virgin. Talk about impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for the God who is. Gabriel describes the child in verse 35 as holy. As adorable as the baby is when the baby comes home from the hospital with that cute little, little hat on with the stripes on and, the, and, 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 you know, wrapped in the blanket and you hold her like a little football. The baby's not holy. We're not holy, no matter how adorable we are when we're little. This is the unique baby of human history ever because he's holy. He's not born like us with a sin nature. He is the one who is of divine origin, of holy origin. The child is both human and divine, fully human and fully God. This is fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, our scripture reading from this morning. Isaiah chapter 9 is written roughly seven centuries before the birth of Christ by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. There we read, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those aren't just words for Christmas cards. They're great words for Christmas cards. But they are words of eternal significance. They're couplets. They're double names. You see, this passage is packed with the connection of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, both of them. A a child will be born. That's the humanity of Christ. He'll be born from the womb of Mary, and he'll be given to us, given because he's already existed. A son will be given to us. God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son became incarnate in the flesh. Right? The word carne comes from, comes from the Latin. You get chile con carne. Right? It means meat or flesh in the Latin. Same thing in Spanish. And so he's incarnate. He's given to us. God the Son is given to us. A child will be born. Humanity. A son will be given to us. Deity. Wonderful Counselor. That's a couplet. This is where the couplets begin in the verse. 
wonderful counselor. Wonderful comes from the Hebrew word pele, which is a word that is used exclusively for God and for what God does. Wonder. I pray that we approach God like the young calf who stares at the new gate with wonder. Wonderful counselor. Wonderful refers to his deity. Counselor refers to his humanity. Because what does a counselor do? A counsel, counselor gives you counsel, gives you advice, and you take it. Assuming that that is advice that is worthy. This counselor is the one who will issue forth his word and the world will follow it. I realize today that the world mocks Jesus not forever. This is a description of his second coming. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Mighty is a reference to his humanity. Is the Hebrew word gibor, which means a manly warrior, a champion, a victor in battle. It is the word that is used of David in the chapter before he cuts off the giant's head. Gibor. Mighty God. Well, the word God speaks for itself, right? Mighty, humanity, God, deity, eternal Father, the next couplet. Eternal speaks for itself. God is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. But Father, when you see Father, sometimes we think, okay, well, that, that's got to be a reference to God the Father, not in this context. Because in ancient times, a father, a noble ruler, a, a, a great ruler would be called a father to his people, one who cares for his people. And this is what we have here in eternal father. It's father forever. And then finally we get the Prince of Peace, the final of the couplets. Some kings come to power because they seize power, they take it. But a true king comes to power because he is born a prince. And so prince refers to his humanity, and peace refers to his deity, shalom, a reference to vertical peace, which is what the angels declared in Luke 2, right? It's not just the one angel, but the heavenly chorus of angels when they came to the shepherds. Peace on earth and goodwill to men with whom he is well pleased. Last phrase is very important. Shalom. This is vertical peace and heavenly peace that the child who is born unto us, the son who is given unto us, that is what he will bring, shalom. And so prince refers to his humanity and peace refers to his deity, the prince of peace, the prince who brings shalom. Vertical shalom between man and God for those who submit to him, who align themselves with him by faith, by faith and horizontal peace. Because when the prince returns, we won't need weapons. We won't need armies. Our weapons will be melted into agricultural tools. That's not the time we live in today. Because there's a different ruler of the world today. It's the one who, who Jesus described as the ruler of this world. It is the devil. But when Christ returns, the prince of peace, he will institute peace in this realm because he will take the peace of heaven and bring it to this planet. This is what the angel means in Luke 1 when he says the Holy 
child, it is a reference to the deity and the humanity of Christ. Charles Spurgeon says it well. Is Jesus not rightly called wonderful, infinite and yet an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son, wonderful art thou, O Jesus, and that shall be thy name forever. Close quote. And then we see verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Shalom. On the throne of David and over, the, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a statement that the child, the child who is given to us, the child who is born to us, the son who is given to us, that one will rule on David's throne first for a thousand years on this planet. There's a reason why Revelation 20 refers to a thousand years, six specific, particular times, because it's a literal thousand years. This is the one who will come back and take the peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness of heaven and bring it to this planet for a thousand years. The devil will be incarcerated for a thousand years. Then there will be a revolution at the end of the thousand years. Revelation 20, the Gog and Magog revolution. One last effort to topple the king of kings. That will be destroyed by fire coming from heaven. That's what it says in Revelation 20. Then the devil, once and for all, will be vanquished. And the one who will do it is this one who was born on Christmas Day. That's the one to whom the Father has given all judgment. Jesus, the name, will oversee the destruction of the evil one who will be cast in the lake of fire, the place of torments, forever and ever. Think of it. The anointed cherub. That's what Satan was called in eternity past. The chosen cherub. The chosen of all... Angels. What does God do? God chooses a human, a human to execute the judgment. Because the, the lake of fire is already prepared, Jesus said. But the sentence has been delayed because God loves you. The sentence has been delayed because in the delay, God created another being, a being that he would bless much more than angels, a being that he would have much more intimacy with than he ever had with angels, a being that would be created in his image. Never does the scripture describe angels being created in the image of God. But we're created in his image. And so God, in his great elegance, will use a human, this child, to destroy the devil. He will use the anointed one, which is what Mashiach means, which is what Messiah Christ means. He will use the anointed human to execute the judgment on the formerly anointed cherub. Do you see the elegance of God? Do you see how much God loves you? Part of the reason why we don't approach 
angels in awe and fear. Of course, we should approach the angel maker in absolute awe, but part of the reason why we don't appreciate the significance of angels and we think that they're angel soft, fluffy beings is because we do not know our place. It is because we are prideful and we do not know our place in God's created order. God, angels, humans, animals. But God, in His great elegance, humbles Himself and comes below angels as a man to then bring us to Him, to make our destiny His destiny. This is the great wonder and awe of this child. It says at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 7, the zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Hosts is an old English word for armies. And sometimes it's true that Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts, sometimes it is used to refer to the armies of Israel the way David will use it, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God, the armies of Israel, who, who taunts Yahweh Sabaoth. He will say that, David will say that, the Gabor, the warrior, before he slaughters the giant in 1 Samuel 17. So it's true, Yahweh Sabaoth can be used for the armies of Israel, but that's not the context here. It's another type of army with another type of soldier, with another type of warrior. We're talking about the commander-in-chief of the angelic warriors, of the angelic armies. One of his generals is Michael, but the commander-in-chief is Yahweh Sabaoth, and he says, my zeal will accomplish this. God is zealous for His Word. It is impossible for God's Word to not be fulfilled. It is impossible for the child to not be the Prince of Peace, to not be Eternal Father, to not be Mighty God, to not be Wonderful Counselor. Because if He's not that, then God is weak and impotent. But of course God says, I will do this by my zeal, by my zeal of my angelic power, power through my angels. As the Lord of the angelic armies, this is the same child that Gabriel tells Mary will come from her womb. Please turn back to the New Testament, but this time to Matthew. Here we're going to see the third and final angelic visit in our Christmas message this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It reads like this. Matthew 1:18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. May I tell you, this is scandalous. This is absolute scandal. Because in ancient times, 
the betrothal period, the one-year betrothal period, was a test of faithfulness. And if the woman that you're betrothed to shows up pregnant during that one year, there's a big problem. She's been unfaithful. This is an issue of adultery. Mary is pregnant. It's an issue of adultery, Joseph thinks. She's been unfaithful, Joseph thinks. Mary is pregnant before they came together, which is to say, before they were married. Here's what happened. The angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias in the temple when he's burning incense. Says, your wife is going to give birth. Your prayer has been answered. Gabriel goes home. John the Baptist is conceived. Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Then Gabriel goes to the north and visits Mary in Nazareth and announces to her, you're going to give birth to Messiah. And your relative, Elizabeth, she's six months pregnant. So what does Mary do? Mary goes to the south to go visit her relative, Elizabeth. And she stays with Elizabeth for three months. Elizabeth, we assume, gave birth. She you know, they don't have OB-GYNs back then, right? I mean, you, your family comes, and maybe there's a midwife. Maybe. But Mary comes to the south, to the town in Judea, where Elizabeth and Zacharias are from, and we assume that Elizabeth gave birth while Mary was still there. Remember, when Mary walks in the door, Elizabeth says, Blessed are you of women which is a way of saying, you're the most privileged of all women. Blessed are you of women, and the fruit, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And the baby leaps in Elizabeth's tummy. The baby John leaps, leaps in Elizabeth's tummy. When Mary walks in the door, of course abortion is an abomination. Of course there is life in the womb. And, in, and with respect to, to John, the scripture actually says that he was filled with the Spirit even from birth. But the history here is Mary comes down to visit her relative in the south, in Judea. Her relative is six months pregnant, Elizabeth. Then Mary goes home after she was in the south for three months. And she goes back and she's three months pregnant. I mean, the baby bump's about to show. She's three months pregnant, and she goes to, to, to Joseph. And Joseph doesn't know. So Joseph, during the engagement period, his wife, his betrothed, is pregnant. This is the scandal. Rumors followed Mary her whole life. This is why the religious leaders with Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 41, will call him a child of fornication. Because everybody thinks Mary was unfaithful to Joseph. That's why she's pregnant in the middle of the betrothal period. Even Joseph thinks this. But Joseph loves her. He loves Mary. Even though he feels this great shame and pain and heartbreak. Keep reading in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, plan to send her away secretly. The penalty for adultery in the Mosaic Law was death. It was a capital crime. 
a capital crime. And so he doesn't want to divorce her publicly. She's going to be stoned to death. At least there's a great risk of that. And so we'll just do a quiet little divorce, and you go your way, and, and, and I'll go my way. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, he's, he's, he's strategizing. How do I do this? He's, he's thinking about how do I do this? So I, I love her, but I just, you know, she, she's unfaithful, and I, I get, we, we got to do we got to separate this. He's planning how to do it, and then God shows up through an angel. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God sends an angel. This is not the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament. This is an angel that God has sent. In this moment of pain, in Joseph's moment of pain and shame, the shame that is associated with all of this, God sends an angelic messenger to assure Joseph, to assure him of the faithfulness of his lady, to assure him of the faithfulness of Mary, to announce good news. There's no shame here, Joseph. There's no unfaithfulness. There is nothing but glory and praise and honor. And this is why Mary is called the most privileged of all women, blessed among women. In verse 21, the angel reveals the eternal significance of the child to Joseph. Look at that. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Don't miss the significance of the name. Don't miss the significance of the angel's words. He assigns the name, this is God, through the angel, assigning the name Jesus to the child. Why? Because the child's going to do something. He assigns the name Jesus to the child, God does through the angel, because the child will save his people from their sins, will save humanity from their sins. It's about what the child's going to do that's associated with the name Jesus. When people put the name Jesus in their cuss words today, they disrespect what Jesus is. They disrespect the name. They disrespect what he does. They disrespect who he is. And so what we're seeing here is the explanation of the significance of the name, capital M, the name. The name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is a more modern version of the ancient, ancient name, Yehoshua. Yehoshua is the name Joshua. And Yehoshua, or Yeshua, mean the Lord saves. The Lord saves. The Lord delivers. So for Joshua, the Lord delivered the Israelites by, by having Joshua as the general who helped them be protected from the Midianites and the Moabites and the Hittites and all the various ites. And the Lord saved or delivered the Israelites through Joshua by leading the Israelites into the land of promise, which is a place of refuge, a place of protection for them. That's Yehoshua. That's Joshua. But then we get to the more modern pronunciation of the name. Fast forward in time, roughly 1,500 years to the birth of Christ, and it's Yeshua, just same name, different pronunciation. 
The name means the Lord saves, the Lord delivers. But in Yeshua, it's far beyond. It's far beyond the deliverance that Joshua gave to the Israelites by bringing them into the land. Because in Yeshua, in this name, Jesus, who has this name because he will save his people from their sins, you have eternal salvation, eternal fellowship, eternal relationship. Not for a hundred years or for a thousand years or for a million years or for a trillion years, but for a trillion times a trillion times a trillion times a trillion odd infinitum. This is the salvation that we receive. You see, before we come to Christ, we're subject to His wrath. We're sinners by nature. And God can't blow that off. The wrath of God is used, that phrase, that description is used over 600 times in the Bible. You say, I don't want to believe in a God who's wrathful. I don't want to believe in a God who's exclusivistic, who says the only way to Him is by faith alone in Jesus. I don't want to believe in that God. You will. You will. Because whether you believe in him or not, that's who he is. He is a God of fierce judgment against his enemies, and that's how we're all born. The enemies of God, subject to his wrath, and yet he is a God of immeasurable love and mercy and compassion and grace. He's both. We can't create a God of our own imagination. Just a God who's soft and cuddly, like angel soft. That's not the God who is. He is full of grace and mercy and love and compassion, but He is also a God of justice and wrath and holiness. And praise God for that, because if He weren't, then heaven would be just as bad as earth under the devil's realm. God's holiness excludes death, excludes pain, excludes suffering. That's why heaven is described with one word by the Apostle Paul. One word. Remember, the Apostle Paul is transported into the third heaven, and he's not allowed to speak of what he saw, and he uses simply one word, paradise. Paradise. Just one word. It's paradise because God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice, and his love, and his mercy, all of it is in display. All of it is on display in the third heaven heaven. This is what we are saved from. We're saved from the judgment that we so richly deserve. This is what is in the name Jesus who we worship. Who we worship this day. This is the greatest gift of all. Merry Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you. We recognize that we are fallen, broken sinners deserving of your judgment, yet you give us your love and mercy. We praise you that you sent a child unto us that by faith in him we may be saved from the judgment that we deserve. We praise you for these things. We worship you for these things. And we ask that you help us remember them in a world that is opposed to you, that is hostile to you and your ways in a world that is hostile to Christmas. We make this prayer in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself.